Good morning. So glad to see everybody. Good morning, Pat. <laughs> good morning. We're so glad to see everybody. If you're new to Amen, we're especially grateful to have you in our midst. So encouraging. Hope you're enjoying your breakfast. I'm about to have donuts with Dad over at PDS, so I've got to save some room, but it looks delicious. And it's so good to be studying God's Word with you guys uh, today in this semester as we dive headlong into First and Second Thessalonians, some of my favorite books in the New Testament. There's some wild stuff that Paul talks about in these letters if you've uh, looked forward into Second Thessalonians. The restrainer, man of lawlessness, all sorts of wild stuff. Um, good stuff, food for our souls that we need as we seek to be God's men in the city of Memphis. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter or chapter 1, verses 2 through 10 in the first letter. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, a little bit of context, just a reminder of what's been going on and what Todd spoke about last week. Uh, in and around 49 AD, so about 15, 20 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul heads to Thessalonica and he preaches the gospel and almost immediately this church springs up. Uh, people hear the gospel, they come to faith, people from all different sorts of you know, backgrounds from every side of the track. You have this ragtag group of new Christians. It's a small church, but it's, but it's a vibrant church. And almost immediately, once this church gets off the ground, persecution comes. And so Paul is forced to leave for the sake of the ministry and really the sake of these Christians. So he leaves, but he loves this church and he's worried about them leaving so soon after they come to faith and after this church gets off the ground, barely an organization at this point. And so he sends his buddy Timothy on a reconnaissance mission. Timothy, go back in there, find out how they're doing and let me know. So Timothy comes back and tells Paul exactly how they're doing. And he says, Paul, for the most part, these guys are doing great. They've got a couple of ethical issues that we'll sort out. But there's one main thing they're struggling with, and it's discouragement. Then we ask, what are they discouraged about? Well, first off, they're discouraged over the persecution. Even after Paul left, the persecution was still there, and it was intense. And they were not prepared for the fact that persecution was, was staying around as long as it was. So they were discouraged by that. Uh, another reason they were discouraged is because some people had died. We're not sure how many, but it was presumably a significant number of people in their congregation died. Now, remember, this is a young church. So they didn't have that great of a theology. They didn't understand everything about the gospel, right? So they had questions and concerns from this persecution and these number of people dying. They started thinking to themselves, my goodness, have we, have we missed the second coming? You know, did, did we get left behind? Did we all get Kirk Cameron? I mean, what's happening? I mean, they were worried about that. Uh, other folks worried, too, have we received, is this a sign of God's displeasure? You remember, they had been pagan worshipers and all of their false gods were fickle. And they had to do this, that, or the other to appease their gods. And say, man, is that what Yahweh's like? Is that what Jesus is like? Have we displeased him in some, some way? Other Christians just felt maybe we're not Christians. This, this shouldn't be happening to us. Some of them probably felt all three of those things. And so Paul gets that report. And in this letter, Paul seeks to speak into those questions and in those doubts and in those concerns primarily to encourage them. And that is the primary reason for our passage this morning, that we might, in the heat of spiritual battle, be restored to hope as we press on in faith. So let's read it together. Chapter 1, starting in verse 2. This is God's word. 
Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report us concerning the kind of reception that we had among you. And you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the time that you've set aside for us to come before you as brothers, to have fellowship, ultimately to feast at your word. Uh, we do pray that you would send your spirit, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the power of your word, not that we would be informed by it, but truly transformed, that we might be more like your son as we seek to be your men in the city of Memphis. Uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In 1912, a missionary from Canada named Dr. William Leslie uh, went to the heart of Africa to evangelize in the nation of the Congo to the Yanzi people who up to that point in 1912 had never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He spent 17 years there preaching, ministering, loving the people with absolutely no fruit to show for his labor. 17 years. And so after 17 years, he left in great discouragement, questioning his faith, really questioning the power of the gospel. 17 years he left discouraged. In 2010, so almost 100 years later, a man named Eric Ramsey uh, was researching, he was a research assistant, he was researching um, missionaries in Central Africa, and he decided to take a team to the Congo to see if the gospel has any relevance there, if the gospel had made a dent there. And when his team arrived, they were shocked by what they found. They found, and I quote, a network of vibrant reproducing churches throughout the jungle, hidden like glittering diamonds. There were eight churches, small churches, in a 35-mile radius with a large church right in the center, a 1,000-seat member church. All nine churches attributed their origins to the faithful witness of Dr. William Leslie, even though he left 100 years prior. His legacy was large because the gospel came in power. Now, why do I mention this story? Brothers, on this side of the glory, you and I need to be regularly encouraged. Because like Dr. Leslie, we might not see the fruit of our labor in this life. In the midst of spiritual battle and temptation and struggle, we might not see the fruit of the Spirit in our own life. And in those moments, we need encouragement. One scholar said encouragement is the adrenaline the soul needs, the fuel to press on as the church militant. 
We need encouragement. We need encouragement by the Spirit. We need encouragement from each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says the power of the gospel is often stronger in our brother's mouth than it is in our own hearts. We need encouragement from one another. That's one of the gifts of the church. Brothers, in this life, we will be discouraged. Some of you may be discouraged right now. Certainly, there's a lot of things to be discouraged about. But if we are going to be the church that turns the world upside down, the church that turns the city of Memphis upside down, as, as Todd talked about last week, we need that fuel for the soul. We need encouragement. And that's exactly what Paul provides us in these first, how many ever verses? Paul is so in love with this church. He is so thankful for it. Ultimately, his, his, the, 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 the audience of this passage is God himself. I mean, this is a prayer of thanksgiving, if you just heard me read it. He, he is giving God thanks for the people whom he loves so much, for the work that God is doing in and through these people. But he's also a pastor. And he wants to encourage these folks. And so this is what Paul does very tactfully. He opens up a window to his prayers so that this congregation might hear from him why he is thankful to God for them. And in so doing, he gives them the fuel they need to press on in the faith when life gets hard. Brothers, everything that Paul says in verses 2 through 10 is true of you if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true of me too. And so it's for our encouragement. In these uh, several verses, Paul shows us what happens when the gospel comes home in our hearts and in our midst. So let's look at these verses together. There's three things that Paul says meant for our encouragement that we too might have the fuel as we press on in faith. The first thing that Paul says in verses 2 through 3 is that when the gospel comes home, it forms a dynamic community. When the gospel comes home in our churches, in our hearts, it forms dynamic Christians in a dynamic community. When we experience suffering and trial in this life, particularly things like doubt, we struggle to see beyond the immediacy of our circumstances, I think. You know what I mean? That when you're, when you're going through something difficult, a trial, suffering, when you're doubting, it's hard to see beyond the immediacy of what you're going through. I experience that. I get tunnel vision. <laughs> my trial is the sum total of my reality. Like, that's all I can focus on. And when we focus on that, we forget what is truth. We forget what is true of Jesus and what is true of Jesus in us. In those moments, we need brothers on the outside of ourselves that will point us back to true reality, point out the grace that is upholding us, the grace that is sustaining us, and the grace that is pushing us forward. And that's exactly what Paul does in verse 2. In his thanksgiving, he gives thanks for these evidences of grace that he sees in the lives of these believers. Evidences of grace that John Calvin says define what is true Christianity. And this is what he says. Brothers, I give thanks to God for the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying, Christians, I see this in your life. You might not see it yourself. You might not be thinking about these things. But this is what I see in you. The works of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things that John Calvin describes as the definition of what is true Christianity. Now that familiar triad, I gave you some uh, passages on your notes. Paul mentions this triad of faith, hope, and love in most of his letters. And we don't have time to dive into every single one of these, these pillars of this, of this triad. But this is what Paul uses to describe 
gospel-shaped people. Okay, and I want to focus on two qualities of these three things. Two qualities of these three things. These three evidences of grace. First off, Paul tells us each of them are outgoing. Not in personality. All right, not all of us are outgoing. That's not what I mean. They are they were outward focused. They go out from there, it's directional. Faith, hope, and love, those aren't merely concepts for Christians. They are action-oriented, directional words. All right, so let's just think about faith. They had faith, not in this world, not in themselves. They had faith in and toward, Paul says, a living God. They knew God. They believed God. They trusted the Lord. They had a faith in and toward the living God. All right, so their faith, it wasn't just this general postmodern faith. You know, just have faith. You know, it wasn't that. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was an objective faith, the faith that these guys had. It was objective in and toward the one true and living God. Now, as Christians, we know there are subjective elements to our faith, subjective elements that we really can't describe to non-believers that don't have the Spirit, for example. Being indwelt by the Spirit is experiential. We experience God's love. There are subjective realities to our faith, but primarily, brothers, our faith is an objective one. There are objective realities that we believe to be true. That's why we have faith. We believe that God is real. We believe that God became man. We believe that God died for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that he rose on the third day. And that's not just wishful thinking. We believe there's historical evidence that point to those facts. We have an objective faith in and toward the one true and living God. So, you know, for example, the chairs that you're sitting in, this is like a substantial objective faith. We all know what the point of a chair is. We get it. We get that whoever designed those chairs designed them to uphold us. We get that concept. But we are going a little bit of a, a step further. We, we actually believe that this morning, that if we sit in these chairs, they're going to hold us up. We believe it. So it's not just we get it, we also believe it, but you are taking a step further. You are trusting your keisters with that chair. You're sitting in them. You, you are actually putting stock and weight in that chair. For these early Christians, that's exactly how they viewed God. They got the concept of the gospel. Paul came about a month prior. They understood what Paul was talking about. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They got it. Made sense to them. They actually believed it. They went a step further. They believed that Jesus was Lord and not Caesar, which was a big deal back then. They believed that Jesus was Lord. They also trusted that with their lives. They trusted that Jesus was Lord. They proclaimed Jesus was Lord. They followed Jesus as Lord, and that had serious consequences. They had an objective faith in and toward the one true and living God. It went outward. Secondly, they had love. Not a normal love. Everybody loves themselves. Not these jokers. They had a love for other people. They had a love that went out from them, not only for other believers within the church, which of course they did. They had love for people on the outside of the church. They even had love for their enemies because that's what Christian love is, which isn't a normal thing. That doesn't come by people naturally to love your enemies, to pray for your enemies. They did. They also had hope. They had hope towards the future. They didn't have hope in themselves. They did not have hope in their present day circumstances. They didn't have hope in whatever the stock market was doing that day. They had hope in the future, primarily that great day to come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and makes all things new. John Stott describes it like this. These Christians had a tangible, objective faith that rested on God's past actions. They were basing their life on what they believed God had done in the past, raising his son from the dead. 
They were resting in that in faith. And because of that, their love worked outward to other people. And they had a hope going forward to that great day to come. Paul says when the gospel comes, it reorients our lives. And he praised God because it reoriented their lives. They had been lifted up in faith. They had been moved outward in love and toward in hope. John Stott says that new birth means very little if it doesn't draw us out of our fallen focus and redirect us towards God. And so Paul praised the Lord because that was true of these Christians. They had this outgoing evidence of grace. Now, the second quality is that each of these evidences of grace are productive. And that's where he really puts his hat. That's why he really gives God thanks, because these graces were productive in their life. Faith, hope, and love, they all sound pretty abstract. But in the Christian life, faith, hope, and love are concrete and dirty and muddy and practical things. Faith, hope, and love. So, for example, faith. Like I just said, Paul knew that faith was not just a mental assent but it was a belief that resulted in something, resulted in action, which is why he says the works of faith. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by the works of faith? As Reformed people, when we put those two words together, work and faith, it kind of makes us queasy. I mean, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about work? Of course, he's not talking about works of righteousness. Paul says elsewhere, the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, brothers. That's the good news of the gospel, that you don't have to clean yourself up going to Jesus. I mean, that's praise the Lord. All right, so that's not what Paul is saying. However, what he is saying is that a saving faith in Christ is never alone. A saving faith in Christ always results in a life lived for Jesus. So, for example, there's two, there's two components of the gospel. Most people understand the first component, that the gospel, Jesus Christ, saves us from something. Right? Jesus saves us from something. He saves us from death. He saves us from the power of sin. He saves us from hell. He saves us from the wrath of God. And praise be to the Lord for those things. That The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us from something. But Paul and scriptures teach us that the gospel also saves us for something. It also saves us for a new life, a life lived with the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel saves us for something. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, one of my favorite verses, where he says, We are saved by grace alone, so that no man can boast. You are not saved by anything you have done or will do. We are saved by grace alone, but he goes on to say that we were created, recreated, saved for good works. We are his workmanship. So we're actually saved upon the works of Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith alone, but we're saved for works in the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant that we're not saved just to sit on the sidelines. He saves us for his kingdom, for kingdom work, for life lived with him. Now, what are these works of faith? I mean, there's lots of ways to describe them. You know, we see it throughout the scriptures. It could mean the work of ministry or the building up of the church, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. Seeking the welfare of the city, as Paul, Todd, spoke about last week. Don't tell Todd I called him Paul just now, okay? We don't want to encourage him that much. Um, it could mean embodying the life of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeking, laboring to make earth as it is in heaven. Those are works of faith. And Paul praises God for them because those works were evident in their life. James tells us that a faith without such works is a dead faith. Paul rejoices because they had a live and working faith. 
Furthermore, love. Their love was productive. It wasn't merely sentiment or an emotion. It was an action-oriented word. He describes it as love is a labor. Labor and love. Now I want to focus on the Greek of these two words. Love, agape, love, you know, this is agape love in the Greek. This is like one of those words that most pastors talk about in sermons mainly because it's one of the few words in Greek that we actually remember. <laughs> you know, yeah. Some of our uh, interns, pastoral interns, like my man Philip James back there, he's in the midst of learning the languages, which means he's one of the smartest people on staff right now because it's fresh. Agape is one of the few words that we remember. But anyway, this is very important right here. Agape love. What is agape love? It is the very love of God. All right, so it's not filio love. It's not brotherly love. It's not, you know, hallmark sentimentality type love. This is an action-oriented love that describes the love of God seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is much more than sentiment. That's much more than feeling. That is an other-centered, action-oriented, sacrificial type of love. And that is the love that God has for us. And as those who have been saved into his family, we're his children now. So you can expect that we're going to start looking like our father. And so the church starts loving as they have been loved, as John tells us in his epistles. So they had this action-oriented, other-centered, sacrificial love. That next word, labor, in the Greek, koros. And this is what labor means. And I think we know what labor means, but just to put flesh on it. To labor, according to the Greek, means work that is done in sweat and resulting in fatigue. So the small band of Christians were sacrificially loving people until they were exhausted. The picture I have in my mind is a mom that is giving birth to her baby. I can't imagine another other-centered, sacrificial form of love than that, which results in sweat and weariness. So here's Paul saying these Christians were loving people like that. It was a laborious love, and Paul goes on to say, without such love, it doesn't matter how gifted we are or how well-respected we are, even in religious circles, without love, we have nothing. But he praises God because that was the type of love they were demonstrating in their community. Thirdly, hope. This hope is not a pie in the sky or wishful thinking, but it's an assurance, a certainty of something that's going to happen, which directs how you live in the present. So here's the deal. When we declare Jesus Christ is Lord and not Caesar, when we say that Jesus is the Lord of our life and not our political party, not our finances, not our family even, when Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life, this is what we're doing at the same time. We're declaring war on hell. If Jesus is the Lord of your life. That means idols aren't. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're declaring war on hell. And when we declare war on hell, we can expect to get bloodied. We can expect that. We can expect the evil one to rage against a Bible-proclaiming and a Bible-believing church. We can expect that. Without the assurance of hope, we will not remain steadfast in the face of our enemy. We need the steadfastness, the assurance of hope. Now, what is hope? I love what Leon Morris says in his commentary. He says, hope is not a quiet, passive resignation, but an activity, an active constancy in the face of difficulty. He describes it as not curling up and hoping things will get better, 
but rather a press on in confidence in the living God because we know things will get better. We know. We have a no-so salvation is what the Bible says. In the song we just sang, Fear not, for I am with you. O be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will still give you aid. The Christian hope is a hope that rejoices, that in spite of what our circumstances say, the true Goliath has been defeated. We believe that. In the bottom of our guts, we believe that Goliath has been defeated. But instead of staying on the sidelines and wiping our brow, saying, thank goodness that's over, We follow our conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the field of battle in mop-up duty because he has already won. And then as we rejoice in that victory, we follow him into the field of battle, pushing back the armies of darkness, pushing back the works of evil, laboring to make earth as it is in heaven with the assurance that one day very soon all things will be made new. It's kind of when the, the, the allies defeated the Axis powers on D-Day. They knew the war was won. And because of that, they had the confidence of giving their lives for the rest of the way. We know that Jesus has conquered the evil one, and so we follow him into battle with confidence. We need that hope. You see, Paul knew whatever we believe about tomorrow will direct how we live right now. Whatever we believe about tomorrow, It will inform us how we live right now. Paul rejoiced because this church were surefire hopers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a dynamic community. And Paul told them about it. He goes, guys, I know that you're scared. I know that you're doubting. I know that you're worried. But the evidences of grace are abounding in your life. Now, how do we, what are some takeaways? I got two. Brothers, do not miss the opportunity to encourage your brother sitting next to you today. We all need encouragement. I mean, just think about it. This church was hitting it on all cylinders. Based off the description that Paul just gave, they have absolutely no business doubting anything, but they did. They were discouraged. And you and I will experience discouragement in this life. We need each other. So here's what I want you to do sometime this week. I want you to get weird about it. I want you just to disrupt someone's pattern with encouragement. I want to say, hey, Frank, I know you're headed off to work. You look great, but just in case you're not, I want to tell you something. I see Jesus in your life, and this is how I see Jesus in your life, and I just want you to know that it encourages me, and I hope it encourages you. Would you do that for your brother? Because we need the fuel, brothers, of encouragement that spurs us on in the faith. The other thing I want to pull away from this is, listen, Keep your eyes fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and keep looking to him because he is our sure foundation. Now, another thing that Paul mentions, he says, when the gospel comes home, it produces a genuine faith in verses 4 through 7. A major question Paul was anticipating that could have arisen based off what he just said is the fear that these pessimists, these doubters would think to themselves, is Paul encouraging you know, introspection that we might doubt our salvation if we find sin in our life or those evidences of grace lacking? Now, is Paul telling me to look at these things in my life to to scare me? (laughs) Of course not. There's nothing wrong with introspection of faith. Paul tells us in Philippians to search out your faith with fear and trembling, and that's simply a command to just to look at your own life to make sure you believe these things, but it wasn't to scare them. Because remember, Paul, 
He was giving God thanks because he was assured. He had an assurance of their genuine faith, and he wanted them to have an assurance of their genuine faith too. So that's why he says what he does in verses 4 through 7. Now, the main thing he wants to get across in this little subsection is that God chose them. He says, brothers, I know that you have a genuine faith. You can know you have a genuine faith too because I know, brothers loved by God, God has chosen you. Now, I know pending on your denomination, you might feel a little bit funny on the doctrine of election. Not all of us are Presbyterians or Reformed people in here, and that's okay. We're all going to heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that's all right. But it is factual that the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. We see it in Deuteronomy 7. We see it in the whole life of Abraham. Paul teaches the doctrine of election. He does it here. He does it explicitly in Ephesians 1. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election. But what is also sure is that 10 times out of 10, when the Bible teaches the doctrine of election, it does it for our assurance, for our encouragement, to encourage us not towards presumption, but towards assurance of faith, not towards apathy, but towards a life of holiness, not towards pride, but towards humility. He teaches this to encourage them. He goes, brothers, I know that you're scared. I know that you're worried, right? And everything I just said in verses 2 through 3 are true of you. But God loves you not because those things are true. Those things are true because God loved you and chose you. God called you before the foundation of the world. He set his affections upon you. He called you to himself. He regenerated you with the Holy Spirit. He's changing you day by day, and he will bring you into glory. And that had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do because God chose you because he loves you, and he loves you because he chose you, and he chose you before the foundation of the world. He set his affections upon you before you were a twinkle in your parents' eye. So Paul is saying, listen, I know you're discouraged, but I know your faith is genuine. I know God has set his affections upon you for two reasons. One, the gospel preached. We see this in verse 5. He says, when you received the word, it wasn't just any word. It wasn't just any message. It was the gospel. It was the good news revealed to us by God, focused on God the Son. It wasn't general love that grabbed a hold of you, but rather it was the love of God demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very message, the very gospel, whose business it is to turn the world upside down and to change hearts. That message, Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing that message, the message in which we preach to you. We preach to you the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he said when we preach that gospel, it came in power. This is very important. The gospel came in power. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's, it's not that it gives off power or that it is powerful, which of course it is, but Paul was very specific with his words. He said the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I like how Tim Keller describes the power of God for salvation. He calls it a disturbing power. The gospel has a disturbing power that disturbs the status quo of our hearts. And this is what he means by that. Just imagine, you know, years ago, you know, maybe it was a friend, a girlfriend, or a spouse, you know, really encouraged us to get to church. And so we, we started investigating. Is church, is that a big deal? I mean, is, is, the, is the scriptures true? Can I really buy into this stuff? So we start investigating the scriptures. We start investigating the gospel. But pretty soon something happens. We realize something. It's no longer that we're investigating the gospel, but the gospel's investigating us. And maybe it was a prayer that you heard. Maybe it was just one verse. Maybe it was a snippet from a sermon. And you were listening to it, 
and it just disturbed you. It just it challenged you in some way. And pretty soon you realize, I don't have a hold of the gospel, but the gospel has a hold of me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite theologians, pastors, he, he shares this disturbing power in his own testimony. Before he became a Christian, he was this really up-and-coming, big-time doctor in England. The world was his oyster. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was famous. He was a good doctor, and he was smart. And um, wasn't a believer, although he, he heard the gospel, grew up in the church. The chief of medicine, which happened to be his good friend, lost his girlfriend. She died in a very tragic way. And he, uh, the chief of medicine came to Martin Lloyd-Jones' house just to have company. But when he got there, he never said a word. He sat down right in front of the fireplace and stared in the fire for two straight hours. Never said a word. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he just watched this man in his grief. Just watched him. <laughs> and then he got disturbed. And he said, right then I realized the vanity of all human hope. I remember what I've heard in Sunday school, and, and now there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something greater than this. There's got to be a deeper meaning of life. The gospel disturbed the status quo of his heart. Brothers, when the gospel comes, it comes in power. If you've been disturbed at a sermon before or by reading the scriptures, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you've been disturbed. If you've never been disturbed, if you've never had your conscience pricked, if, you've ever, if, you've, if every sermon you've listened to and every verse you read you agree with and has never bothered you, well, let's have a different conversation. Right? But this church right here, they were disturbed by the power of God. And so Paul praised the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, lastly, preaching the gospel, it came with the Holy Spirit. The gospel is never preached with power or conviction unless the Spirit is behind it. 1974, the Lausanne Covenant put it like this. Without his witness, our witness is always futile. Paul says that as Christians, we have a no-so salvation. There are things that we can know in the scriptures. It's not that we're any better than anybody else. It's just that we're more informed. We're better informed as Christians. And one of the things that we can know is that God is mighty to save, and he chooses to save through the spoken word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached here. Now, another thing that Paul says why he can know they have a genuine faith is because in the way in which they received the gospel, verses 6 through 7. In verses 6 through 7, he says, guys, in the way in which you received the gospel, the way that it came home in your life, you did not manufacture that. Paul says the gifts of the Spirit can very much be mimicked. There can be great preachers. There can be good teachers, good money managers. Gifts of the Spirit can be mimicked. Fruit of the Spirit, however, can never be mimicked. Not even if we try the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, seriously, Paul is saying that it's not just a maturity of age that's taken place in Thessalonica. All right, there comes a time, Christian or not, where it's just no longer socially responsible to do keg stands at a field party. I mean, you know, 40-year-olds don't do that anymore because they've just gotten older. We mature out of some of the sins that we used to partake in. But Paul's saying this is not a maturity of age thing. The only explanation for this is that the gospel has been implanted in these people's hearts. And here's a couple of reasons I know. First off, you receive the gospel amidst suffering. A lot of people believe the gospel when life is going easy. When life is going difficult and you believe the gospel, that's supernatural. He says the church was not burned by like shaft against the uh, trial or fires of trial. The gospel didn't get choked out by thorns. It came at home in the believer's hearts. He says you received it with joy. Christian joy is not a feeling like happiness. 
although it includes happiness, but rather it's this a state of being, it's a state of calm that can be experienced even in the, the fieriest trial. It's a fruit of the Spirit. A fruit of the Spirit that believes that God is on the throne and all of His promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ and one day soon everything sad will be made untrue. Fruit of the Spirit. He says, lastly, you became imitators. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, something that he teaches in every single church that he goes to is the life of Jesus, the model of Jesus, how to follow Jesus, walk by the Spirit. And he tells us in Galatians 5, when we walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to do things in our life, change our hearts, make us more and more like Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to this church in Thessalonica. They didn't fake it because there was a whole bunch of little Christs running around. And I don't mean that irreverently. I mean, they were imperfect, but they were looking like Jesus. They were looking less like the world and more and more like Jesus. And you just can't fake that. Eventually, truth comes to light. There was a guy I went to high school with. He was the world's most efficient bully. I mean, he, was, he was monstrous. He was the bane of every skinny and nerdy kid's existence. I mean, he was really, you know, he was equipped to be a bully. And, but one day he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He became a Christian, and his life changed almost overnight. And in the weeks that followed, he looked more like Jesus and less like the Iron Sheik, if you've followed WWF in the 1980s, okay? He was no longer this mean monster. He changed, and I mean that almost by physically, like the contours of his face changed. There was, there was a peace about him. There was a pleasantness about him. He became a Christian, now, a lot of people were upset about that because they thought he was pretending. Now, he's just going to, this is, this is a ruse. He's going to make fun of the church or, or do something. Like, you know, that's incumbent of how he used to be. But there was a wise person amongst that group that said, no, no, no. What's happening in that guy's life can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus. It has come home in his heart. And he was right because that guy led me to Christ two years later. Paul says, listen, you are a dynamic community, but it's not because of anything that you've conjured up on your own. It's because you have a genuine faith. Now, lastly, and very quickly, because I know we need to go, in verses 9 through 10, because you have a genuine faith, you've also become a contagious community. You've become a contagious community. One of the greatest dangers of any organizations, particularly the church, is when we forget our reason for existence and our purpose. I was reading earlier this week about a church in D.C. that was shriveling and dying many years ago. And it dwindled to basically no membership at all. And one passerby, probably out of jest, just making fun of this church, posted a sign on the front door that said, going out of business. Two days after that, a member of that church posted a sign under that sign that said, we never knew what our business was. And that church ended up dying and has remained dead. The doors are closed all because they forgot their purpose and their existence. There's nothing, there's nothing more sad than when a church forgets its purpose. Paul rejoices here because this church did not forget. The gospel had come home to roost in their hearts and in their community, and he gave God thanks for it, and I give God thanks for second prayers and you men here because the gospel has come home to roost in the hearts of his people. And so Paul rejoices because when the gospel came home to roost in their hearts, two things happened. They became contagious in their proclamation. Gospel sounded forth in the Greek. It echoed. It literally reverberated from their church out into the community. 
They were excited to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, like the woman at the well. She couldn't wait to go tell other people about the God who knows us inside and out but loves us still. They couldn't wait to tell other people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more than that, they became contagious in their passion. Their faith became known, not by the words they said, but by the life they lived. People took notice. And people will take notice in our churches and in our lives too when the gospel changes us from the inside out. About 50 miles from this church was Mount Olympus. And so in certain places in Thessalonica, you could tell and see, you know, the place of pagan worship in the Roman Empire. And it was just this reminder that the whole culture of the Roman Empire was just dedicated to pagan worship and emperor worship. And this church was very much involved with that prior to Paul coming. They were just like everybody else in society, living dead, wasteful lives because they worshipped a dead God. But something happened. They repented, and they turned to the one true and living God. And because of that, things started happening in their life. They started becoming like the one they worshipped, a living God, and they started becoming more and more like Jesus. They were filled with this new vibrancy, a new life, a new joy. They were loving the city. They were loving people in ways that they had never seen before. It was the love of Christ, and they had a different type of hope, not a hope that was fixated in circumstances or in this world. They had a hope that was fixated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, there started to be this gospel gossip throughout the countryside. They were saying, did you see Frank the other day? Did you see what he and his family were doing? What they gave up? Who they were loving? Who they had over their house? for? Did you see that community? I think they call it ecclesia or church. I can't remember the name, but there's something weird going on in Thessalonica. What is going on in Thessalonica? The gospel came home. And it turned the world upside down. And brothers, may they say that about us. My goodness, have you seen those men at Amen? There's something different about them. They're contagious. They're dynamic. And it's not because how great we are. It's because God chose us in love. So brothers, fixate your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's with you. He's for you. And may we encourage each other in the gospel as we press on in faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers in this room. I thank you for the strong and true encouragement they are to me. I'm so grateful for them. Help us, O Lord, to be shaped by your gospel. Help us to believe more deeply. And in response to who you are and what you have done, may we make your name great in the city of Memphis. We pray in Christ's name.